The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to Tech Trader on Barron's Live. I'm Barron's Associate Editor, Eric Savitz. I am uh, here with our the latest in a series of conversations about uh, technology and the, uh, technology investing. Happy to have with us today, Ryan Jacob, who is the founder of the Jacob Internet Fund. Ryan is one of the, uh, the old timers in the tech investment uh, world. He's been running his fund for multiple years now, for more than almost 25 years, uh, not quite, uh, but almost 25 years. And we're going to be talking about internet stocks and the future of internet investing. Ryan, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Ryan, maybe the first thing we could do is uh, set the ground a little bit. Um, you have been doing this for a long time. You started this fund at a fascinating uh, moment in uh, uh, before the bubble era. So uh, tell us a little bit about the history um, um, and uh, give people a, a little bit of a flavor of the story. Sure. Uh, well, personally, uh, I actually followed the IPO market back in the mid-1990s, which was full of these new internet companies. It was really kind of everyone was still trying to figure out exactly what these companies were. And then uh, I was asked to uh, manage one of the first uh, publicly traded internet mutual funds back in late 1997. And at that point, that's when interest really started to take off in the sector. And then by the time, uh, you know, after about a year and a half there in 1999, I went out on my own, founded Jacob Asset Management and launched uh, the Jacob Internet Fund. And then, as you pointed out, within about six months, unfortunately, that's when we had the, the dot-com crash and a major revaluation in the whole sector. Many companies washed out and it was a really difficult time to get through. And then since then, you know, uh, it's been uh, a really amazing journey uh, over the last 20 years as, as the Internet has taken hold and become so central to all of our lives. Um, and uh, so it's been an exciting area to invest in for sure. You know, one of the things that's interesting about your early days in the fund was uh, there were other early Internet funds. You were not the only one. And um, and you had some very difficult uh, moments uh, when you go back and look at 2000 and 2001. Uh, 2001, I presume, was probably the worst year. Um, and you but you managed to stick around and pull through when others uh, uh, sort of gave up. Uh, w w were there lessons that you learned from that period that apply even now and in an environment where we have not, I, I would not say that this looks like 2001, but I would say we'd certainly have a period where there's a lot of froth, valuations look a little stretched in some cases. How do you think about the comparison of the two periods and sort of the lessons you've learned from that difficult time period? Yeah, when we launched the fund, I was only 28. So I only had, you know, really a few years of portfolio management experience under my belt. Um, and I think one of the mistakes that we made back then was uh, taking a too, probably too strong a look at the big picture and, and understanding that a lot of these companies were going to become major, major forces in our economy. Nothing, I mean, we couldn't have foreseen what actually happened, but 
Um, and then basically when uh, we got in the midst of the crash and major valuation and money coming out of the sector, we were probably too aggressive. Um, you know, just basically, uh, you know, continually adding to our positions, even though uh, the business, the businesses were deteriorating at that time. Um, you really had a flush out, as you remember, of a lot of companies, a lot of the new venture capital and public companies were funding the existing internet companies. And then when they got washed out, there was nothing left. And uh, we were just too aggressive. And, and now I think since then, the lesson learned is, you know, we're much more cautious and deliberative uh, when conditions change. And, uh, you know, it's like the old saying, like the old saying, you know, if, if you find yourself in a hole, the first thing you do is stop digging. Mm -hmm. And uh, it sounds pretty simplistic. But, you know, from a portfolio manager's perspective, I think a lot of them will tell you it's, it's, it's very wise, very wise words. So when I look at uh, the the holdings in in your fund, in in in, and I, I should note that you actually have a few funds. Uh, there's a you have uh, maybe well, let's talk about that for a second first. So just lay out for people the the various yeah, so, so we, funds. We started with the Jacob Internet Fund, and then subsequent to that, we we wanted to really broaden out into some other sectors, higher growth you know high growth sectors that weren't necessarily related to technology. We have a small cap growth strategy. Uh, the Discovery Fund invests in even smaller companies. Um, and then we also have uh, an ETF that we launched back in July, a Jacob Forward ETF uh, that is uh, not exclusively technology, but really looking at investing in uh, earlier stage, you know, aggressive growth companies, mainly across technology and healthcare. Uh, and uh, so there are a lot of similarities. You know, when you're looking at earlier stage companies like we do, um, assessing risk is probably one of the uh, the key elements of being successful. And, and we felt we could apply that outside of technology as well. So, um, yeah, that's really where we stand at, at this point with the, with the four different strategies. Got it. So one thing that's interesting, um, as, uh, as I look at the holdings in your portfolio that I think anyone would notice is that, um, you know, you look at your top 10, for example, and here's what you don't see. You don't see Amazon. You don't see Facebook. You don't see Alphabet. Um, there are some familiar names, to be clear. Um, you know, you own some Twitter and a few other names that are, are going to be familiar to people. But you also own a lot of stocks that people probably don't know anything about. And I'm curious about how you think about composition of the portfolio. And are you by design trying to avoid those larger cap names? Or is it more, a, um, does it fall out of your investment process? How do you How do you think about that? How should investors think about that? I think there's a few things investors will notice about our funds versus other technology funds. One is um, you'll notice a fair mix. Uh, uh, you'll you'll see a shift in our top holdings much more than maybe other funds. You'll see more of a focus across market caps from small to large. Uh, it, it, you know, to this particular point, this is probably one of the smallest allocations we've had to larger cap stocks than, than I can remember from when we started you know, back in 1999. And, and that's a separate issue that we can get into, but uh, we're just seeing a lot of the best relative valuations today in the small and mid cap space. Um, but, you know, we're pretty active managers. Um, you know, we uh, feel that that's really important in our space. Uh, it wouldn't get me, it would make me nervous if I was investing with a manager in, in the technology space that didn't have active turnover, just because there's so many changes, right. uh, you know, across any area of technology you look at that you really want to be proactive. And 
you, you don't want to have a situation where you have a stale portfolio when, when technologies have evolved or new competitors have emerged. Um, I think it's one of the most challenging sectors to invest in. So I think you really do have to be proactive. So, so to be clear, though, it's not like you've made a decision about, I mean, you'll invest large cap, small cap, mid cap. That's not like a strategy decision. Like, oh, I'm not going to own like the trillion dollar market cap companies or something like that. Right. You don't just rule them out based on size. Not, not at all. We do have small positions in Alphabet and Facebook, um, but positions maybe last year we would have had in an Apple or a PayPal are now gone. Um, not that they're not good investments. They just don't meet the criteria. You know, we, we do have a pretty aggressive growth criteria. A lot of our companies uh, are growing 20, 30, 50% annually. Um, and, and we know going in that, um, you know, these are higher risk, uh, higher risk companies. And, and because of that, though, we also expect higher returns. Um, you know, I think right now, when you look at Alphabet and Facebook, Part of the reason that they've remained in our portfolio is even though they're trillion dollar companies now, uh, they're still growing like like small caps with terrific margins and kind of unassailable competitive positions. So as negative as I may be about large cap holdings in this environment, uh, you know, there are some exceptions. So, uh, you know, that, that I think we can make a pretty valid case belong in our portfolio. So you've had um, you've had pretty good returns uh, this year um, in the mid twenties, I think. Um, how are you feeling about the opportunity as you look into twenty twenty two, and what are the key sort of uh, like inputs uh, that you think about as you look at next year's uh, outlook? I think there there are certain aspects of what's happening today that we agree with. I think most managers. Those are that we're probably heading into a period of rising interest rates. Uh, the economy is on pretty sound footing. Uh, the, the risks aren't really risks of recession. They're risks of inflation. Mm-hmm. So um, in that sense, we're absolutely uh, in line with, I think, most of uh, Wall Street's thinking. And that that does affect uh, some of our portfolio decisions. The one area that we, we really differ is that um, a lot of the conventional wisdom right now is that higher interest rates uh, will uh, be bad for growth stocks, be bad for companies that have that are longer dated assets. And so mm-hmm. higher interest rates would negatively affect them. I think you have to distinguish between large cap and small cap growth, uh, large cap growth. I mean, Apple would be a great example. You know, if they're only growing at, at a marginally greater than GDP, higher interest rates are going to have a much bigger impact on their valuation than maybe a smaller company that we own that's growing 20 or 30% a year, they can, they can clear that hurdle much easier than a company that has more modest return expectations. So, you know, this year, like you mentioned, all of the performance seemed to come in the first quarter the rest of the year has been pretty difficult. Um, It's not a coincidence that that first quarter is when we had a pretty steady uh, rise in interest rates. Right. Um, So I think, yeah. Well, and, and Ryan, we're we're seeing some of that right now, right? So even just in the last few days, we've seen a spike in ten-year uh, Treasury rates, and we've had a couple of pretty tough days, particularly for uh, kind of high. I mean, I see it the most in sort of high multiple cloud software plays, uh, which have been you know high high growth, high multiple stocks. Um, uh, are really getting uh, whacked around for the last couple of days. This, you, it is the same phenomenon we saw in the spring when rates spiked. 
how are you feeling about that group of stocks? You know, the they are some of the fastest growers, <clears throat> but they also are some have some of the highest multiples. Um, what's your sense of that group? And maybe is there one or two that you actually like? Sure. Well, yeah, I do think that it's funny because it used to be um, when we were talking about early stage aggressive growth companies, they were mostly small caps. In today's world, you have companies come public so late that actually you have early stage aggressive growth companies that are have market caps of over a hundred billion dollars. Yes. Exactly. So uh, it, it's so that's that's a little bit trickier. So I, I would argue that the companies that are the largest in that category are probably the ones that are experiencing the most pain. Mm -hmm. uh, companies that uh, you know were trading at the highest valuations and also the highest market caps. Um, so the, they're the ones really feeling the brunt of it. Um, you know, I think when you're looking below 10 billion, um, it, it's been difficult, but not quite as uh, distressing. And uh, but there are there are absolutely some names that we do like that, let's say, are 30, 40 or 50 billion that have, you know, good uh, competitive positions, growth characteristics, you know, some of the attributes that we're looking for. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of them would be a MongoDB. Mm -hmm. uh, this is one of our largest positions right now. Um, and uh, and there's a, there's a few others. I'll admit there's not a lot. Uh, Square would be one. Um, you know, there there are, there are a few, um, but I do think it's it's trickier in that realm. Right. You know, okay. Sure. So let, let, let's uh, let's talk about a few specific names, and let's start with MongoDB. So you know, MongoDB, of course, is a uh, for people who don't know, is a is a database software company. Uh, they compete with the you know with Oracle among other people, um, and it's uh, but it has a little more of a an open source. Uh, structure, open source approach to, to the market, um, and the stock has kind of struggled this year. Um, what's your what is your thesis on on Mong on Mongo uh, from here? You know, Mongo is really you know the idea of kind of cloud based open source uh, uh, database uh, offerings, like they do with their um, you know their original kind of uh, they do have a premise base. A service that they offer in terms of, you know, with software, but also with Atlas, they have a cloud-based service that's really taken off. And now it's actually over half of their revenue. Um, they've actually seen accelerating growth because of that. Um, and uh, the traditional relational database market is probably over $60 billion, you know, dominated by Oracle, SAP, and others. Um, and and they're, they're, they're a clear front runner here. There are a few other competitors. There have been some companies in the past uh, that have uh, nipped at the, you know, kind of nipped at the heels of the big players. Mm -hmm. Mongo though, has been, has shown a lot of traction. So um, it is one that we do um, acknowledge. It's, it's a de definitely a very high valuation, um, but uh, the growth profile is, is, is such that we feel it justifies current prices. And um, again, they're one of, you know, we do have a few companies like this that are actually showing uh, accelerating revenue growth and a big, portion of this is coming from Atlas, which is their cloud-based offering that really can be accessed from small to larger company companies alike. And uh, it's just, it, honestly, it's it's just much more adaptive to this distributed, uh, you know, the amount of data that companies have to grapple with. Um, the old relational databases just aren't really equipped for this. Right. Okay. Um, let's talk about, uh, there's a company that I suspect almost no one knows about uh, who's listening here, which is uh, one of the largest holdings in all of your funds, which is called Optimize RX. 
uh, or it sort of looks like if you're typing it out, it looks like optimizer X, like, uh, uh, and, uh, and so, um, talk a little bit about them and why you find the share so appealing. So optimize, uh, was one of these companies that really did benefit from COVID. Um, optimize, uh, has a network of electronic health record, uh, electronic health, uh, they have a network of electronic health record companies where they can distribute their advertising and communication through these networks to reach doctors and surgeons with targeted advertising, basically, for um, for drugs and, uh, uh, you know, really across all different segments. And, uh, you know, they obviously were starting to get some traction pre-COVID with uh, the major drug brands looking to kind of, re you know, they're always looking for ways to reach their audience. They haven't been as quick in digital channels, as you might expect, uh, they, you know, were really, you know, they have a legacy, obviously, of having a lot of feet on the ground, pharmaceutical sales reps, uh, industry conferences, other speaker events, dinners, you know, very old school in a lot of ways, the way they would market their products, which they spend an, a tremendous amount of money uh, doing. And uh, the digital channels, they put their toe in the water in a lot of them, but never really committed to more experimental. In a lot of ways, it reminded me back in the late 1990s when a lot of major companies experimented with internet advertising. And then eventually, as they realized they were getting higher returns uh, through those channels, just allocated more and more of their marketing budgets there to today, where they dominate. You know, internet marketing dominates their marketing budgets. So right. this is starting to happen in, in the pharmaceutical space. And Optimize is, is one of those early players that um, you know, was starting to get their name out there, getting some interest among the major uh, companies and brands. COVID hits, all of a sudden they, you know, they, they, the, all of their kind of old school channels shut down and they start to spend more digitally and more open to really widening their budgets. Yeah, here. They, they, the pharma industry, you mean, right? That's correct. Yeah. The pharma industry. And as you know, like, you know, when you're talking about a Merck, a Pfizer, uh, Glaxo, you know, there's multiple departments, but each of these companies right. is dozens of companies, you know, <laughs> and dozens of brands within those companies. So it, it's a very, very deep market. And uh, so they they just it made it easier for them to basically onboard these people into more comprehensive, uh, again, advertising. Also, they, you know, in terms of communication with uh, doctors and patients for compliance and other types of messaging. Um, Optimize became more of a trusted partner. So, um, you know, they were a company that saw a huge boost out of COVID and then continued that this year. I think that's been the biggest differentiator this year is which companies in our space uh, had maybe a benefit from COVID and then can build on that benefit rather than there's other companies that had a benefit into COVID that basically, unfortunately, it was more of a sugar high. And then once that demand receded, um, you know, then the, the financials, uh, you know, the, the, the estimates were just way too aggressive. Right. And you've seen a real bifurcation of those returns over, you know, the last six or nine months. Yeah. And we've seen a few of those recently, right? Chegg and uh, Peloton. And uh, today, as we speak, uh, Zoom is, uh, uh, despite actually reasonable earnings, um, uh, I think the market is just acknowledging uh that their growth growth rate uh, is just uh, substantially slower now than it was during the pandemic. Now the question, the interesting question about this this division, right, is how to tell which ones are seeing sea change as opposed to reversion, right? Like so, 
you know, in Zoom, you could sort of see coming, like we weren't, they weren't going to grow 350% uh, every quarter uh, in perpetuity. In Peloton, you could kind of imagine that you might see some gyms reopen that might affect their business. Optimize, I don't know, like there's, if you think about the pharmaceutical industry's historic methods of, um, of marketing, uh, you know, you send sales reps to the doctor's office and they bring lunch and, you know, stuff like that, right? Um, there's like, a, there, there's some kind of face-to-face -face marketing elements of that story that might go back in theory, right? I mean, or- You know, the, the doctors, even pre-COVID were being, they were shutting off access even prior to COVID. And COVID, they shut off access completely. Uh, it will come back a little bit. I'm not saying it, <clears throat> I'm not saying it's going away. Right. Um, but uh, the, the trends were already there. And now that the major pharmaceutical brands have seen these kind of real world economics of the digital channels, um, it's incredibly appealing. You know, when you look at Optimize RX and you say like, well, what's their potential? And you realize they're, you know, they're doing less than a hundred million a year in revenue right now. You know, right. what's their potential? My goodness. I mean, it's, it's a multi, you know, tens of billions of dollars are spent on advertising. Um, so the opportunity, you know, so this is, again, it's, you know, when you invest in earlier stage companies, if you look at the current financials, sometimes they, they can seem expensive. Um, I think you do have to take a bit of more of a broader view and say, well, okay, um, you know, what, what is the, you know, the potential for two or three years? And, and as long as, you know, obviously, you know, 10 or 20% growth isn't going to, isn't going to cut it. But um, if you feel that they can double or triple the size of their business over the next three to five years, they become pretty compelling investments. And, and, and you know, again, it's, it's these, you, when you see a clear, there, there's a reason why Optimize is one of our largest positions. We see a clear path for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so uh, that's, it, it checks a lot of boxes for us. Ticker on that is OPRX, I think, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, so let, let's touch on a, a, a few other things as uh, as we get to the last uh, third of this uh, discussion. So one thing I want to talk about, um, it's a little bit of a sticky one, is uh, is Zillow. So you have a position in Zillow. Zillow has just gone through this fairly wrenching uh, change where they decided to uh, withdraw from the iBuyer market, which, uh, you know, of course, is, is this... Uh, element of, of Zillow's business and some other companies too, where they go out and they buy houses and then resell them uh, for their own account. And there was sort of a view for a long time that Zillow's position was not, we're not flipping houses, we're, we're creating value, we're making it easier for the buyers and sellers. And uh, they found themselves uh, not really making money in that business, have decided to shut it down. And that's really uh, taken a toll on, on Zillow's share price. How do you think about it? How have you been approaching your own position in Zillow shares, uh, given the turmoil in, in the story and the stock? Zillow's definitely been one of the more interesting situations this year. And, uh, you know, starting the year, you know, getting more involved in iBuying and then having to pull out. We, um, it was one of our larger positions earlier in the year, and we definitely cut it back. And then, you know, when we started to hear more and more of some of the troubles on the iBuying side, um, the big issues were, you know, them being able to, uh, basically sell the properties as quickly as they may have, uh, you know, had, you know, up until the summer, they were selling these properties pretty quickly. That was slowing mm -hmm. down. Uh, the pricing wasn't as robust. Uh, and, uh, so we just became more and more uncomfortable that, uh, that the estimates and kind of the expect the near-term expectations were going to be met. Then they came out, if you remember, they announced that they were going to put a pause on the I-bonding. Right. 
you know, they did that first. And then at that point, that's when we got more aggressive in our sales. And then, um, uh, really, you know, you know, we just wanted to wait to see, uh, for the next earnings report, you know, what the plans were going to be. And I was afraid they were gonna have to kind of rip the bandaid off in terms of acknowledging the amount of losses they, they racked up over the summer. And we just felt, you know, again, this is a portfolio management decision where you just basically, you know, if, if you start to become more and more uncomfortable, move to the sidelines and then just wait for a little more clarity in this case. And this even surprised us. They, they pulled out of the market completely. <laughs> and now, um, uh, so they did rip the Band-Aid off, <laughs> that's for sure. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, now are just focusing on becoming, you know, really just maintaining their position as by far the leading uh, real estate portal. Um, and then honestly, subsequent to that, we've been slowly buying shares back. So um, I think it's, I, I don't remember exactly the market cap now. My guess is it's probably around 15 or 16 billion, um, which I think is is pretty inexpensive for the, you know, for the, the, the by far the most dominant you know real estate portal on the internet, I think something around two thirds of all real estate transactions at some point touch Zillow. So um, it's a very unique position to be in with a lot of money making opportunities that that can be made from that rather than actually physically going out and buying houses and selling them. So uh, and there's some history there too. And part of the reason they got into it was I think a bit defensive. They saw the success of Open Door and others. We're worried that um, they could maybe be, you know, a competitive threat. So, um, you know, it was lesson learned, and uh, it was definitely one of the situations this year that we had to be a bit more adept at, you know, managing our position. Got it. So, another one that's uh, kind of an unusual situation, um, a company that people might know a little bit less about, is called Momentive. Now, Moment, people may not know the name Momentive, but they probably know about their their biggest uh, business, which is SurveyMonkey. Uh, they used to be called, uh, well, they had some weird name that was a real variation of SurveyMonkey, but it's the parent of SurveyMonkey. And Momentum um, recently accepted a bid uh, to um, uh, to go, uh, to be acquired, um, but stock hasn't behaved very well. L talk a little bit about the situation and how you're feeling about Momentum shares. Well, Momentum, you know, it's a name that we spoke about in the past that we thought was a uh, one of those companies that was a uh, enticing, excuse me, enticing uh, acquisition candidate. And uh, they, um, you know, it, one of their big partners is actually Salesforce. And we had thought that Salesforce would be kind of the mo most logical acquirer. Um, you know, in terms of surveys and kind of, you know, managing your customer experience, it's really kind of at the forefront of every major U.S. corporation, you know, trying to understand their customer um, better and um, really be in tune with their needs and their wants. And uh, so it, it's kind of a, a very kind of a hot button area and momentum through SurveyMonkey and some of the other uh, products they've uh, folded into it, you know, are leading our leading player. Um, and uh, so Zendesk uh, was looking to basically merge with them and uh, you know, give them a bit more heft. And, uh, you know, with that capability on their existing platform and unfortunately, as a stock deal, Zendesk shareholders, you know, didn't really look as favorably on it. It's quite frankly, it's been disappointing from our standpoint. So it was acquired or, you know, was clearly coveted by other companies, but um, a bit disappointed. I, I had thought that uh, someone more strategic would be interested in them, uh, one of the larger tech companies. And uh, at which point, you know, we think it would have gone for a higher valuation. So, do you, um, will you vote for the deal? Like, will you support 
Uh, we're still, we're still, we haven't made a decision uh, on that. So right. we're still. This, this smells a little like Zoom and Five Nine, uh, which of course was a situation where Zoom had agreed to acquire Five Nine, a call center company, call center software company. Zoom stock uh, did the opposite of Zoom; it like fell apart, um, and as a result, uh, dramatically reduced the value of the offer. And then, as it turned out, Five Nine shareholders just voted no. Um, I mean, you could sort of see what's going to happen. And then that deal fell apart. They couldn't come up to new terms. This has a little bit of that feel to it. I mean, it's a similar pattern uh, for slightly different reasons, I think. But um, but it looks, it rings familiar. I agree. I, I think it's 50-50. It goes through. And it's one of, <laughs> that's been one of the challenges in terms of what we're doing with our position. Because if the deal were to go through, I think I'd be more inclined to sell off the position um, but I'm not convinced the deal is going to go through, in which case there could be another buyer emerge. So uh, I'm trying to be a bit more flexible. Uh, we have cut back the position a little bit, but I'm hesitant to cut it back more until we get a you know a better a better idea. I really do think at this point it's a coin flip whether or not this I can make a good case either way. So another another place I wanted uh, have you as we we only have a few minutes left, but I, I, one thing I think I, we should really talk about is. Uh, you have a couple of plays um, on the crypto market, and you know that's always super interesting to people. Um, it's not about like directly owning Bitcoin, um, say, but you you have a, a number of plays in the portfolio that address crypto. Talk about a few of those and how people should maybe think about ways of investing in the phenomenon without necessarily buying. Um, buying, uh, you know, crypto or other uh, 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 of the the currencies. Yeah, in our general view is there's a there's a few ways to look to you know to look at the space that I think are pretty easy to uh, calculate or you know kind of have a, a pretty good sense of of direction. And there are other areas that are extremely difficult. I think one way to look at crypto right now what I think is relatively easy that uh, the idea of digital currencies aren't going away. There's, there's too much utility. Um, there's too much. I, you can even look at it as kind of like open source finance. It's really filling a vacuum that the um, existing um, global finance uh, structure uh, doesn't uh, cover, um, you know, or, or is very inefficient. And um, so they're kind of pushing innovation there and allowing people to engage in types of transactions that just aren't as easy to do through the traditional system. So digital currencies are probably here to stay. Now, in terms of the value of different coins and that becomes, you know, whether Bitcoin's worth 60,000 or 600,000 or 600, uh, you know, Bitcoin's worth what someone's willing to pay for it. There's no economic value being generated from a Bitcoin. Um, so it really is purely supply and demand. And you could make a cogent argument that you know, if digital currencies are going to become more and more accepted, then those values should go up. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. But there's not really, again, you have to understand it basically is a supply demand uh, situation, no sort, no kind of economic value there. So right. we've tended to focus on those companies that uh, benefit from increased transactions in digital currencies. Mm -hmm. So Voyager Digital, which is a consumer uh, digital currency broker, uh, you know, covering a whole variety of coins. Um, it has been a tremendous company for us over the last year. Another one, Silvergate Capital, that, that really caters more to the institutional community with their Silvergate Exchange Network. 
to help people do uh, 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 digital currency, the U.S. dollar transactions and vice versa um, for free right now as they're trying to onboard as many institutions and counterparties as they can right now mm -hmm. uh, has been been a, tr a tremendous grower for us and still we still think ha has a lot of potential. So I think, you know, if you if you are I think and as far as investments go, the Bitcoin in the last year is probably about tripled, I guess, in value. Mm -hmm. um, our investments in companies that are benefiting on the transactions have are up, you know, five to tenfold over that period. So um, you can still do well in crypto company investments without investing in coins, which I think is a in my opinion, it's a bit more speculative. Um, and uh, I think the companies that are helping kind of build out, uh, you know, the, build out services that will cater to this increasing acceptance on the consumer side and institutional side. Those are the ones that we think are the most attractive right now. So, so you wouldn't, uh, uh, you're not going to buy Bitcoin uh, or, you know, Dogecoin or whatever for the fund for directly. You wouldn't be ever, ever do that. No, no Shiba coin. <laughs> no Shiba. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. We've, uh, we have, I have so much more to ask you, but we're running out of time. Um, thank you for joining us today, Ryan. Very much appreciated. And thanks to everyone for joining us. Uh, this is uh, uh, the last Barron's Live episode of the week um, as we move into the Thanksgiving holidays. Uh, wish everyone a, a happy and uh, safe holiday. Join us. We'll be back on Monday uh, when my colleagues uh, Lauren Rublin and Ben Levison will be discussing the outlook for financial markets, uh, industry sectors, and, and individual stocks. Again, thanks for everyone uh, for being here. And please be safe and come back again soon. Thanks very much. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.